in a civilization as old as China, you're bound to have ups and downs. Indeed, there are multiple ups and multiple downs, big empires and complete collapses. One of these downs was known as the century of humiliation. This century of shame and humiliation, as many in China call it, lasted from 1839 to 1949. But I want to extend that a bit more to 1977 or 1979. And that would encompass the Maoist era and the period just after Mao. So that's not 100 years, but close to 140 years. The best way to look at this is to break them down into main events that I tackle. In total, there are an amazing 14 events in the aforementioned century of humiliation, and that does not include the Maoist era. Before I dive into those events, the question should be, what was the state of China in 1839? Well, the Qing dynasty was established in 1636. So by the time I want to focus on, on this episode, 1839, the dynasty was already 200 years old. At the start of the dynasty, the Chinese empire continued to be the hegemonic power in East Asia. However, during the 18th century, European empires gradually expanded across the world. As European states developed economies built on maritime trade, colonial extraction, and advances in technology, the dynasty was confronted with newly developing concepts of the international system and state-to-state -state relations. European trading posts expanded to territorial control in nearby India and on the islands that are now Indonesia. The Qing response, successful for a time at least, was to establish the Canton system in 1756. That restricted maritime trade to that city alone, and then gave monopoly to trading rights to private Chinese merchants. The British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company had long before been granted similar monopoly rights by their governments, so it was not such a crazy idea. In 1793, the British East India Company, with the support of the British government, sent a diplomatic mission to China led by one Lord George McCartney in order to open trade and to put relations on a basis of quality. The imperial court viewed trade as a secondary interest, whereas the British saw maritime trade as the key to their economy. Since China had little demand for European goods, Europe paid in silver for Chinese goods such as silk, tea, and ceramics, an imbalance that worried the mercantile governments of Britain and France. However, the growing Chinese demand for opium provided the remedy. Consequently, the British East India Company greatly expanded its production in Bengal and happily shipped it to China. The Daogong Emperor, concerned both over the outflow of silver and the damage that opium smoking was causing to his subjects, ordered Lin Zhu to end the opium trade. Lin confiscated the stocks of opium without compensation in 1839. And that brings us to the first opium war that started in 1839. These were a series of military engagements that were fought between Britain and the Qing dynasty between 1839 and 1842. The immediate issue were those official seizures of opium stops at Canton that stopped and banned opium trade throughout China. The British government insisted on the principles of free trade, equal diplomatic recognition among nations, and backed the merchants' demands. 
The British Navy defeated the Chinese using technologically superior ships and weapons, and the British then imposed a treaty that granted territory to Britain and opened trade with China. The Chinese surrender in 1842 marked a decisive, humiliating blow. The Treaty of Nanking, the first of the unequal treaties, demanded war reparations, forced China to open up the treaty ports of Canton, Amoy, Fachao, Ningpao, and Shanghai to Western trade and missionaries, and then it ceded Hong Kong to Britain. While on the topic of the unequal treaties, the Treaty of Wampoa in 1844 was a treaty with France where the French got the same rights as the British. This humiliation ended up provoking a rebellion against the Qing dynasty. The Taiping Rebellion was more of a civil war than a rebellion, or at least a massive, huge, gigantic rebellion that could basically be a civil war. I'm going to call it a civil war. And this civil war was fought between the Manchu Qing and the Han Hakka-led Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. It lasted from 1850 to 1864. Between 20 and 30 million, yes, 20 to 30 million people are estimated to have died from the civil war, and it is considered the bloodiest civil war in all of history. To make matters worse, the Nyan Rebellion in the north was co-current with this Taiping Rebellion. Interestingly, in both the rebellions, the Queen had some support from the United Kingdom and from France. Ultimately, the imperial dynasty did win, but at a massive cost to their power, resources, and prestige, not to men mention wealth. This is also assumed to ultimately have led to the collapse of the dynasty in 1912. While these rebellions were ongoing, the Russians started to get expansionist ideas of their own. They moved quickly into what is now Russia's Far East, and just as the Second Opium War was concluding, moved into land by the Qing and forced the Treaty of Arjon in 1858. This is considered one of those unequal treaties. China lost more than 1.5 million square kilometers of the territory in the northeast and northwest of China. Speaking of the Second Opium War, well, I guess you could also call it the Anglo-French War. This was a war pitting the British Empire and the French Empire against the Chinese Empire, and that lasted from 1856 to 1860. Like the first, the Second Opium War was fought over issues relating to the exportation of opium to China and resulted in a second defeat for the Qing dynasty. The war caused many Chinese officials to believe that conflicts with the Western powers were no longer traditional affairs, but part of a looming national crisis. The war led to the Convention of Peking in 1860, where an agreement of three distinct treaties concluded between the Qing dynasty, Britain, France, and the Russian Empire. In China, they are regarded again as among those unequal treaties, and there are quite a few of these unequal treaties. The area known as Kowloon was originally leased in March 1860. The Convention of Peking ended the lease and ceded the land formally to the British on the 24th of October 1860. Article 6 of the Convention resulted in China losing Kowloon and Hong Kong in perpetuity to Britain. Outer Mongolia was lost to the Russian Empire. Then, between 1884 and 1885, there was the war with France. There was no declaration of war. Militarily, it was a stalemate. 
and the Chinese fared better than other wars that they had fought and lost outright. However, one outcome was that France supplanted China's control of Tonkin, which was northern Vietnam, and that allowed France a deeper foothold into Indochina or Southeast Asia, as we call the area now. While the Sino-French war was going on, a bigger war had just started, this time with the Japanese, who had just come out of that Edo-era period of isolation. And please check out my episode on Edo-Japan for more. We actually call this the first Sino-Japanese war. The second one comes later. We'll get to that in a bit. In this first war that lasted between 1894 and 1895, Japan and China fought over control of the Korean Peninsula and who ultimately would have supremacy over that area. After more than six months of unbroken successes by Japanese land and naval forces, the Queen government sued for peace in February 1895. The war demonstrated the failure of the Chinese attempts to modernize its military and fend off threats to its sovereignty, especially when compared with Japan's successful Meiji restoration. For the first time, regional dominance in East Asia shifted from China to Japan. The prestige of the Qing dynasty, along with the classical tradition in China, suffered a major blow. The humiliating loss of Korea as a tributary state sparked a public outcry. Just when things could not get worse, they got worse. The Boxer Uprising occurred between 1899 and 1901. What was this? The Boxer Uprising, or Rebellion, was an anti-foreign, anti-colonial, and anti-Christian uprising in China by the militia united in righteousness, known as the Boxers in English because many of its members had practiced Chinese martial arts, which the type referred to as Chinese boxing. The movement was made up of independent local village groups, many of which were secret, making the total number of participants difficult to estimate, but may have included as many as 100,000. They originally attacked the Qing government, but soon called upon it to resist foreign influence altogether. They then supported the Empress in resisting the resulting foreign invasion, which all but destroyed the group and ended the rebellion, though some members continued in other groups across China. These foreign invasions were known as the Eight Nation Alliance. This eight-nation alliance was simply a multinational military coalition that invaded northern China in 1900. This is what the boxers were trying to fight. The allied forces here consisted of about 45,000 troops from eight nations. Germany, Japan, Russia, Britain, France, the United States, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. Neither the Chinese nor the foreign allies issued a formal declaration of war. No treaty or formal agreement bound the alliance together. Some Western historians define the first phase of hostilities that started in 1900 as, you know, more or less a civil war, but you don't know. Though the Battle of Tartan Forts in June pushed the Qing government to support the boxers outright. With the successes of the invasion, the later stages developed into a punitive expedition rather than a war, which clinched Beijing and northern China for more than a year. The fighting ultimately ended in 1901 with the signing of the Boxer Protocol, a treaty of sorts between the Qing Empire and the Eight Nation Alliance. This, by the way, is also regarded as one of those unequal treaties. And yes, there are a lot of those. And all of this time, all while all this was going on, 
Tsarist Russia invaded and took Manchuria. At this point, everyone, we have covered just 72 years of destruction, meaning we have another 75 years of hell-bent destruction still to cover. In 1903, the British decided to go to Tibet. It was supposedly an expedition and not an invasion. Well, of course, the expedition was effectively a temporary invasion by the British Indian Armed Forces under the auspices of the Tibet Frontier Commission, whose mission was to establish diplomatic relations and resolve the dispute over the border between Tibet and Sikkim. In case you are wondering, Sikkim is a Himalayan state now in India bordering Tibet that is now in China. In the 19th century, the British had conquered Burma and Sikkim with the whole southern flank of Tibet coming under the control of the British Indian Empire. Tibet was ruled by the Dalai Lama under the Gandang Parandang government that was in turn a Himalayan state under the gaze of the Qing dynasty right up to 1911, when Tibet got its independence and broke away from China for the first time in a while. Japan had gained a large sphere of influence in northern China and Manchuria through its victories in the First Sino-Japanese War and then the Russo-Japanese War, and had thus joined the ranks of the European great imperialist powers in their scramble to establish political and economic domination over imperial China. In the near future, i.e. after the 1912 revolution and the removal of the imperial court, the Japanese saw an opening, an opportunity to further expand its position in China. A total of 21 demands were made, and it was divided into five groups. By the way, the year is 1915. So group one, four demands here. It confirms Japan's recent seizure of German ports and operations in Shandong province and expand Japan's sphere of influence over the railways, coasts, and major cities of the province. Group two had seven demands and it pertained to Japan's South Manchuria Railway Zone, extending, extending the leasehold over the territory for 99 years and expanding Japan's sphere of influence in southern Manchuria and eastern Inner Mongolia to include rights of settlements and extraterritoriality appointments for financial and administrative offices of the governments. It also gave priority for Japanese investments area. Japan demanded access to Inner Mongolia for raw materials as a manufacturing site and as a strategic buffer against Russian encroachment into Korea. Group 3 had two demands. One, to give Japan control of Han Yi Ping and also the Pingjing mining complex. It was deep in debt to Japan. Group 4 had one demand, and that was to bar China from giving any further coastal or inland concessions to foreign, i.e. European powers. Group 5 had seven demands, and this was the most aggressive. China was to hire Japanese advisors who could take effective control of China's finance and police. Japan would be empowered to build three major railways and also Buddhist temples and schools. Japan would gain effective control of Fajian across the Taiwan Strait from Taiwan, which had been ceded to Japan in 1895. China ultimately rejected Japan's revised proposals on the 26th of April 1915, and the Genro intervened and deleted Group 5 from the document, as these had proved to be the most objectionable to the Chinese government. 
Therefore, a reduced set of 13 demands was transmitted on the 7th of May in the form of an ultimatum with a two-day deadline for response. This other unequal treaty was signed by all parties on May the 25th, 1915. The May 4th movement was a anti-imperialist cultural and political movement that grew out of student protests in Beijing on the 4th of May, 1918. Students gathered in front of Tiananmen Square to protest the Chinese government's weak response to the Treaty of Versailles, which decided to allow Japan to retain territories in Shandong that had been surrendered to Germany. The demonstration sparked nationwide protests and spurred an upsurge in Chinese nationalism, a shift towards political mobilization away from cultural activities, a move towards a more populist base and away from traditional intellectual political elites. For many years, the orthodox view in the People's Republic of China was that after the demonstrations of 1919 and their subsequent suppression, the discussion of possible policy changes became more and more politically realistic. People like Chen Dizhu and Li Dao shifted more to the left and were among the leading founders of the Communist Party of China in 1921, whilst other intellectuals, such as the anarchist writer and agitator Ba Jin, also took part in the movement. The May Force Movement served as an intellectual watershed movement in the Chinese history of modern times. It was an event that radicalized Chinese philosophical thought. Western-style liberal democracy had previously had a degree of traction amongst Chinese individuals and intellectuals. Still, however, after the Versailles Treaty, it lost much of its attractiveness. The Japanese invasion of Manchuria began on the 18th of September 1931, when the Tung army of the Emperor of Japan invaded Manchuria immediately following the Mukden incident, that was a false flag operation that was conducted by the Japanese army. At the end of the war in February 1932, Japan established a puppet state called Manchukuo. Their occupation lasted until the end of World War II when the Soviet Union and Mongolia marched in under Operation Offensive. The Japanese occupation of the region, at least according to China and many other historians, was by many accounts a brutal occupation if you happen to be local Chinese. This led to the Second Sino-Japanese War that started in 1937 and concluded in 1945, pretty much the World War II. This war was primarily waged between the Republic of China and the Empire of Japan. China fought Japan with aid from the USSR and the USA. This Second Sino-Japanese War was the largest Asian war in the 20th century. It accounted for the majority of civilian and military casualties in the Pacific War, with between 10 and 25 million Chinese civilians and over 4 million Chinese and Japanese military personnel missing or dying from war-related violence, famine, or other causes. The war has been called the Asian Holocaust. In China, World War II's end marked the end of a century of humiliation. But I disagree somewhat. I think the years leading up to 1978-1979 were also not easy. I want to break this up into a few segments. 1. The 1912 Revolution and the End of Imperial China 
to the 1945 to 1949 Civil War. And three, the Mao era. When I talked about all those things that destroyed China for over a hundred years, I omitted a biggie, the 1911-1912 revolution. This revolution happened six years before the February 1917 revolution in St. Petersburg against Tsarist Russia. It ended China's last imperial dynasty, the Manchu-led Qing dynasty, and then led to the establishment of the Republic of China. The revolution resulted in a decade of agitation, revolts, and uprisings. Its success marked the collapse of the Chinese monarchy, the end of a 2,000 plus years of imperial rule and 276 years rule of the Qing dynasty itself, and ultimately the beginning of China's early Republican era. Back on the 10th of October 1911, there was another uprising, the Wuchang Uprising, an armed rebellion amongst members of what was by now the new army. Similar revolts then broke out spontaneously around the country and revolutionaries in all provinces of the country renounced the Qing dynasty. On the 1st of November 1911, the Qing court appointed out Yuan Shakai as leader and prime minister, and he began negotiations with the revolutionaries. In Nanjing, revolutionary forces created a provisional coalition government. On the 1st of January 1912, the National Assembly declared the establishment of the Republic of China, with Sun Yat-sen as leader of the United League Group, as President of the Republic. A brief civil war followed between North and South that ended in compromise. Sun would resign in favor of Yuan, who would become President of the new national government, as long as Yuan could secure the abdication of the Qing Emperor. This edict of abdication of the last Chinese emperor, the six-year-old Pui, was concluded on the 12th of Feb, 1912. Yan was sworn in as president on the 10th of March, 1912. His failure to consolidate a legitimate central government before his death in 1916 led to decades of political division and warlordism, including a brief attempt at imperial restoration. This was a hugely significant moment in Chinese history. It is not to be underestimated. The Republic of China, a.k.a. what is present-day island of Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China on the mainland both consider themselves the legitimate successors to the 1911-1912 revolution and honor the ideals of the revolution, including nationalism, republicanism, modernization of China, and national unity. On Taiwan, i.e. the breakaway republic, the 10th of October is celebrated as Double Ten Day, the national date of the ROC. On mainland China, the day is celebrated as the anniversary of the 1911 revolution. So that's the revolution. Now I want to tackle the civil war that happened right after the end of World War II. That technically, a war, World War II, that China was a victor in. After all, the Republic of China won a permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council right after that with full veto rights, right? Mm, maybe. The Chinese Civil War was a war fought between the KMT-led government of the Republic of China 
and forces of the Chinese Communist Party, Republic of China is sometimes called the ROC, and the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. And that lasted intermittently from about 1927, but it really kicked off after 1945. The war is generally divided into two phases, with an interlude. From August 1927 to 1937, the KNT-CCP alliance collapsed during the Northern Expedition, and the nationalists controlled most of China. From 1937 to 1945, hostilities were put on hold, and the Second United Front fought the Japanese invasion of China. The Civil War resumed, with Japan defeated, and the CCP gaining upper hand in the final phase of the war from 1945 to 1949, known to history as the Chinese Communist Revolution. The communists gained control of mainland China and established the People's Republic of China in 1949, forcing the leadership of the Republic of China to retreat to the island of Taiwan. Starting in the 1950s, a lasting political and military standoff between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait continues to today, with the ROC in Taiwan and the PRC on mainland China both officially claiming to be the legitimate government of all of China. After the second Taiwan Strait crisis, both tacitly ceased fire in 1979. However, no armistice or peace treaty has ever been signed. It was initially little Taiwan as a Republic of China that held the UN Security Council seat. The PRC considers the island of Taiwan as a Chinese province. Of course, now the PRC has that UN Security Council seat. Now we are moving on into the 1950s and Maoist China. I'm going to look at just three things. One, land reform. Two, the Great Leap Forward. And three, the Cultural Revolution. The land reform movement was a campaign by the CCP under Mao Zedong during the late phase of the Chinese Civil War and the early part of the People's Republic of China. This was the 1950s, early 1950s. The campaign involved, believe it or not, the mass killing of landlords by tenants and land redistribution to the peasantry. In case you missed what I said, the campaign involved the mass killing of landlords by tenants and the land redistribution to the peasantry. The estimated number of casualties of the movement ranges from the hundreds of thousands to millions. In terms of the CCP's own evaluation, it's estimated that 830,000 had been killed and Mao estimated as many as 2 to 3 million were killed. Those who were killed were targeted on the basis of their social class rather than their ethnicity. Class-motivated mass murder continued almost throughout the 30 years of social and economic transformation in Maoist China, and by the end of the reforms, the landlord class had been largely eliminated from mainland China or had fled to Taiwan. By 1953, land reform had been completed in most parts of mainland China. Then we had what is known to history as the Great Leap Forward. In January 1958, Mao launched the second five-year plan known as the Great Leap Forward, a plan intended to turn China from an agrarian nation to an industrialized one. Under this economic program, the relatively small agricultural collectives that had been formed to date 
were rapidly merged into far larger people communes, and many of the peasants were ordered to work on massive infrastructure projects and on production of iron and steel. Some private food production was banned, and livestock and farm were brought under collective ownership. Under the Great Leap Forward, Mao and other party leaders ordered the implementation of a variety of unproven and unscientific new agricultural techniques by the new communes. The combined effect of the division of labor to steel production and infrastructure projects and cyclical natural disasters led to approximately 15% drop in grain production in 1959, followed by a further 10% decline in 1960 and no recovery in 1961. In an effort to win favor with their superiors and to avoid being purged, each layer in the party exaggerated the amount of grain produced under them. Based upon the falsely reported successes, party reports were ordered to requisition a disproportionately high amount of that fictitious harvest for state use, primarily for use in cities and urban areas, but also for export. The result, compounded in some areas by drought and in others by floods, was that farmers were left with little food for themselves and many millions, yes millions, starved to death in the ensuing Chinese famine. The death count in rural parts of China was higher than the deaths in the urban centers. Worse, the Chinese government continued to export food that could have been allocated to the country's starving citizens. Famine was a direct cause of the death of some 30 million Chinese peasants between 1959 and 1962. Many children, once they survived this debacle, did not survive much beyond 1962 because simply of a lack of nourishment in that decade. Yes, so the death rate is probably way higher than 30 million. Mao's physician believed that he may have been unaware of the extent of the famine, partly due to a reluctance of local officials to criticize his policies and the willingness of his staff to exaggerate or outright fake reports. I personally feel he eventually did know about the damage and he could have done something about them, but he didn't and there was no going back. Mao stepped down as leader on the 27th of April, 1959. However, he retained other top positions such as chairman of the Communist Party and of the Central Military Commission. In my view, the Great Leap Forward was a tragedy for the vast majority of the Chinese population, as was the last almost 140 years. So, but there was one last surprise still in the works, and that would be the Cultural Revolution. This was a socio-political movement that started in 1966 until Mao's death in 1976. Its stated goal, to preserve Chinese communism by purging remnants of capitalist and traditional elements from Chinese society, and then to reimpose Mao's thought, known as Maoism, to be dominant ideology in the PRC. You see, Mao wanted to recover from the failures of the Great Leap Forward. The Cultural Revolution was characterized by violence and chaos. Death toll claims vary widely, with estimates of those perishing during the revolution ranging from about 250,000 to several million people, a number comparable to all of the other various disasters so far. Beginning with the Red August of Beijing, massacres took place nationwide, including 
the Gungji massacre, in which massive cannibalism sadly also occurred. The Inner Mongolia incident, the Gundong massacre, the Yunnan massacre, and the Hunan massacres all happened during this period. Red Guards destroyed historical relics and artifacts, as well as ransacking cultural and religious sites. Tens of millions of people were persecuted. Senior officials, most notably Chinese President Xu Shakui, along with Deng Xiaoping, yes, that Deng Xiaoping, and also Peng Dushai and He Long were also purged or exiled. Millions were accused of being members of the five black categories, suffering public humiliation, imprisonment, torture, hard labor, seizure of property, and sometimes execution or harassment into suicide. Intellectuals were considered the stinking old ninth and were widely persecuted, notably scholars and scientists who were killed or committed suicide. Schools and universities were closed with college entrance exams cancelled. Over 10 million urban intellectual youths were sent to the countryside in the Down to the Countryside movement. It was not until December 1978 when Deng Xiaoping became the new paramount leader of China and started the Bulan Faishang, literally meaning returning to normal program, which gradually dismantled the Maoist policies associated with the Cultural Revolution and brought the country back to order. So we made it to January 1979 and the new dawn of China. But the chaos, humiliation, destruction, death, and trauma associated with all of that that started with that first opium war in 1839, took 140 long years before it concluded. This kind of trauma people don't forget easily. It lasts in the consciousness. And if you're listening to this in 2022 or any time around that, then it's in recent memory. That trauma is in memory. It's in society. Back in 1979, China's new leadership would do what it would take to prevent that from happening again. Only time would tell, of course, if Deng's reforms would stand the test of time. And with hindsight, we know that they stood the test of time. Thank you once again for taking the time out to listen to this episode. All the best, and I'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye for now.